done quite a few wedding ceremonies over the years. Um, a lot of them are doing well. Marriage is lasting into the decades. Some, unfortunately, not so much. But I think we're all probably doing better than these folks. Here's some of the shortest marriages that I could find in my research. Drew Barrymore and Jeremy Thomas were married for 39 days. Pamela Anderson and John Peters were married for 12 days. Britney Spears and Jason Alexander were married for 55 hours. The shortest marriage on record that I could find was in Kuwait, which lasted for three minutes, according to Kuwait News. They got married. She tripped. You know, as they were going down the steps, the husband made fun of her, and she'd had enough. They turned around and complained to the judge, and that marriage was over. The longest marriage on modern history, Karam and Katari Chand, were married for 90 years. Anybody here longer than that? No? And I think the longest marriage in the Bible is probably Adam and Eve. So they were married shortly after creation, and then Adam lived 930 years. We just don't know when Eve passed away, but probably safe to assume that that marriage lasted for centuries. And what an easy anniversary to remember. Somebody asked, Adam and Eve, what's your anniversary? And Eve looks at Adam, and Adam says, the the sixth. And they said, well, the sixth of what? Nothing, just the sixth, the sixth day of creation. Easy to remember. I want to talk today about lasting love, enduring love. Of course, we're in a sermon series, if you're new to us, on the family, family matters, love matters. We're focusing on the descriptions of love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7, incorporating those into our families. in, In past messages, we've talked about What does it look like to have a kind love in the family or a patient love, a forgiving love, a generous love, a love that is true and honest? But today we want to zero in on on lasting and enduring love. Using verse 7, 1 Corinthians 13, 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So our four last emphases here will be bears, believes, hopes, and endures. But we're going to do two today and then two again Next Sunday, I want to emphasize two things. Our focus has not been narrowly on marriage per se. I mean, these these are applications no matter what the configuration of our family. And also, I know half of us, half of America has been divorced and remarried. We have no interest whatsoever in guilting anyone over a past relationship or a divorce or remarriage. That's not our point. The point of this entire series, including today, is to strengthen and encourage the marriages that we have, the families that we're currently in, those singles who may be anticipating marriage in the future, to strengthen those future marriages as well. I'm going to say two things today about enduring love, lasting love. Number one, lasting love protects. It protects. 1 Corinthians 13, 7, love bears all things. So in a word study of bear, love bears all things, B-E-A-R, the word is stego in the original language, and the thesaurus, the thesaurus would say this, to cover, to hold off, to hold out against, to endure patiently. Other translations translate this verse, love always supports, never gives up, patiently accepts, love always protects, and is loyal no matter what. Interestingly, in three places in the New Testament, this word stego, bears all things, is translated roof. Roof. It's translated the roof. And so that's a word picture. It, it gives us what we're trying to convey here is love bears all things in the sense that it holds up and it bears the weight and it protects against the elements like the sun and the rain. But in a family, it protects against whatever attacks may come, whatever is trying to undermine the family. 
We are protecting each other. Spouse protects spouse. Parents protect children. Older children protect their parents. Let me put the uh, picture of an actress up here. See if you know who this actress is. <clears throat> Angela Lansbury. Angela Lansbury. Did you know back in the 60s, Angela Lansbury and her husband had two children who at that time were in their teens. Now, they're living in California. And the 60s, it was a time of social turmoil in America. The drug scene was really getting going. And she realized that her two teenagers were getting involved in drugs. And she said in a later interview, it started with cannabis and then it progressed onto heroin. She said they were, they were mixing with a bad crowd up there in the hills of Laguna. And she said to her husband, we got to get our kids out of California, out of this environment. So they took their family and moved to Ireland. Now, Ireland was a homeland of her mother. And at that time, they were not undergoing the social turmoil in Ireland that they were in America. And Lansbury quit acting. She, took, she quit all acting assignments just to become a stay-at-home mom and to focus on her family. And they got in that rural environment. They got their teens under a doctor's care because they're going under withdrawal for heroin. And their children responded very favorably to these changes and turned things around. In that later interview, Angela Lansbury recognized they dodged a bullet. She said, our daughter, Deirdre, had been running with Charles Manson. She was one of many youngsters who knew him. They were fascinated by his charisma. She said, we would have lost one or both of our children if they had not been removed to a completely different environment. We were so lucky. Well, maybe they were lucky. They were also blessed and that she was also acting as a roof. She was protecting her children and her family. Bob Russell writes, Today's youth are bombarded with a secular worldview. Education, news, entertainment, and advertising all promote a hedonistic philosophy where contemporary thought is deemed more relevant than the Bible. Our children are conditioned by the adversary to instinctively reject the idea of divinely revealed and absolute truth. And Russell quotes Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And he continues his thoughts. The second half of that verse, will not depart from it, is more of a guiding principle than an absolute promise. When children are properly guided, they're more likely to remain faithful to the Lord, but not always. When a child rebels, most Christian parents overstate their own failures and ruminate over what went wrong. We should have been more consistent, intentional, more tolerant, more strict. Perhaps so, but even the best parents make mistakes. Perhaps parents' most common and egregious blunder is to relegate the training of biblical values to others. The Scripture instructs parents to teach God's Word to their children. Biblical training is meant to be a daily priority, backed up with a positive parental example, not merely 30-minute sessions at church once a week. What happens in the church is supplemental to what's happening in the home. So we try to equip our families from time to time with resources, and I'm really encouraged by some of the people coming to me in the congregation saying, we're using this with our kids. Seems to be working well. Uh, Emily Smith has done that. Katie's done that over here. And Nate and Scott have linked these resources on our church website so other parents can go on there and look and say, well, this is what these parents are using that's age-appropriate for their children, very effective in engaging them in the principles and the values of God's words. If you're using something like that, let us know. Let Nate know. Let Scott know so we can link it on our website and other parents can see what's going on. Now, under this heading of a roof or a protection, love bears all things, and we're thinking about protecting our children, 
in particular, I want to say something about a study that just came out this past week, and it has to do with the, the transgender activist movement where parents are pressured to have their children undergo either puberty blockers or surgery to help their children transition because what they're told is that there's a higher suicidality, and if they don't, their children might commit suicide. So there's this great pressure on parents to go along with that. Now, uh, this past week, a study came out, let's see, from Denmark, from the Journal of the American Medical Association that paints a completely different picture. The study of 7 million people over four decades found that transgenders in Denmark who have already transitioned have a much higher rate of suicide than the general population. Transgender people in the country had seven times the rate of suicide attempts and three and a half times the rate of suicide deaths compared with the rest of the population. This is in stark contrast to media reports about how kids who want to switch their biological sex are at greater risk of suicide if parents don't acquiesce. The study also found that 43% of transgenders had a psychiatric diagnosis. This raises critical questions about whether the trans industry might be pushing surgeries and therapies on children whose real problem is getting swept under the rug. The astronomically higher suicide rates among transitioned or transitioning patients certainly indicates widespread dissatisfaction with the outcomes of sex change operations and therapies. Now, I just read that two days ago, inserted it into my outline yesterday. Again, to equip parents or grandparents or those who know other parents against this propaganda pushing parents to do those kinds of things with their children. If you're interested in that study, it's in my manuscript. Just if you want the manuscript, just put it on a connect card like they have the manuscript, and that study is linked in that manuscript. Okay, so we're saying two things today about lasting families, lasting love. First of all, lasting love protects. Secondly, lasting love believes. Lasting love believes. Love believes all things. Again, the word study, pistuo. To believe the best in, have faith in, to trust to be trustful, to have confidence in, be loyal to, to maintain faithfulness, to believe in, to be convinced of something. Bear in mind the context here in Corinth. Paul's writing to this church family at Corinth, and they were anything but trustful of each other. They were very selfish. They were divided. They were litigious. They were suing each other. Paul says, stop that. You need to protect each other. You need to believe in each other and believe the best about one another. And that certainly translates into our family contexts as well. Kent Hughes writes, Whereas love believes all things, the judgmental person disbelieves all things. He presumes the worst. He reads evil into the most innocent of actions. He impugns motives. He refuses to give others the benefit of the doubt. He is the opposite of the magnanimous, big-souled person. 
I went to a leadership conference over here at Pathway Church. Uh, Sherry Lynn was talking over there. She's a local, they have a radio, Christian radio show, she and Brant Hansen, Sherry Lynn. And she also produces plays. And so she was, she was producing a play. She had a team that was under her. And she said the manager of the venue where they were at would not speak to her. When she gave her give him an itemized list of things she needed done, he would not speak to her. He would not speak to her assistant who was also an African-American woman. He was white. He would only speak to Eric, who was on her team, and he was also a white male. And Sherry Lynn said, her assistant said, that guy's racist. And Sherry Lynn said, well, we don't know that. We deal with actions, not intent. Actions, not intent. So she says she had a, a conversation with Bob. She said, Bob, when I, I, when I give you a list, of a to-do list, so I want you to bring that back to me not to Eric. She said, Bob, do you know why? He said, why? She says, because I'm in charge. She said, Bob, you know how you can tell I'm in charge? He said, how? She said, the invoices come in my name. I pay the invoices. And she said, she chuckled, Bob chuckled, and they both went home with peace and joy because she did not judge his intent, only his actions. And they never had that problem again. We do not know someone else's intent. God said in 1 Samuel 16, 7, people judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Only the Lord knows other people's hearts. We barely know our own hearts, much less what someone else's motivation is. Dr. Emerson Egerich Egerich wrote the book, Love and Respect. Some of you may be familiar with that book. Great book on marriage. All married couples should read Love and Respect. All singles who hope to be married someday should read this book. It's a great book. Let me read you an excerpt. No one gets married thinking, I want to make my spouse miserable. Now, there may be some exceptions to that, but as a rule. Nearly everyone enters marriage with the very best of intentions. Unfortunately, when we feel unloved or disrespected, we often start judging motives rather than seeing the person's best intent. So whenever our spouse's good intentions fail to produce loving or respectful actions, we have a choice. We can either believe the best about our spouse or question their heart. Though we are good-willed people, sin still has a grip on us. We all have moments when we're selfish, when we're needy, even mean or spiteful. When your spouse shows their sinful side, it is easy to label them as evil will. But your spouse's temporary nastiness must be distinguished from evil character. Your angry spouse might temporarily not wish you well. But these exceptions don't do away with your spouse's overall character and good intentions. You can still choose to see the best in your spouse. And when you sit down to discuss their actions in a respectful and loving way, you will probably discover that the unloving behavior was triggered by an emotional wound or an unmet need. Most anger and meanness in a marriage stems from pain or disappointment, not malice. Steve Wright gives eight pointers for believing the best. Leave the judging to God. Give your spouse the benefit of the doubt. If you need to ask their motives, ask, but preferably don't. Number four, give grace whenever you can. Five, remember your own weaknesses and your forgiveness. Speak the truth in love, not judgment. Work together rather than placing blame. And focus on things that are praiseworthy, Philippians 4, 8. 
focus on the praiseworthy in our spouses. In 1962, on the Andy Griffith Show, in the Mr. McBeavy episode, Opie had encountered someone he named Mr. McBeavy out in the woods, and he was describing him to his paw and to Barney. And he said he walked in the treetops, wears a silver hat, has 12 extra hands, blows smoke from his ears, and jingles when he walks. And so Andy and Barney kind of laughed about that and figured he's got an imaginary play friend out there. Well, truth was, this came out at the end of the episode, was that he was a lineman, a telephone lineman, he climbed the telephone poles, and everything that Opie described was, could either be attributed to something about his, his uniform or his work or some trick that he'd learned, like the smoke coming out of his ears. But, the, but So Opie's vindicated <clears throat> at the end of the episode. But, and this little clip we're going to look at, uh, that hasn't happened yet. And when Opie comes home with a quarter supposedly given him by Mr. McBeavy, Andy says, okay, we got to put a stop to this. You've got that quarter somewhere. You need to stop play acting. You need to stop lying and tell the truth. So here we have Opie and Andy and their come to Jesus talk. Let's roll that. you was having this morning galloping around the backyard on uh, Blackie. We was both enjoying that little game. Of course, now now the truth is they, there never was any real Blackie. That's just something that you made up. Ain't that right? Well, about, uh, <clears throat> about this Mr. McBeavy. Maybe the same thing happened there. Maybe you... Uh, made him up too, just for fun, and there's, there's nothing wrong with that. What's wrong is using a Mr. McBeavy to get out of work and to explain things that seem to come from nowhere. Hope they, uh, there comes a time when you have to stop the play acting, tell the truth. And that time's now. Right now. Hope I want you to be man enough to tell me that Mr. McBeavy is just make-believe. That's all you have to say, and it'll all be forgotten. But if you don't, then something else is going to happen. I believe you know what I mean, don't you? Yes, Pa. All right. Tell the truth. Just go ahead and say right out, Mr. McBeavy is just make-believe. Well, go ahead. Mr. McBeavy is just... Say it. I can't, Paul. Mr. McBeefy isn't make-believe. He's real. Opie. Don't you believe me, Pa? Don't you, Pa? 
I believe you. making up an imaginary character. Well, what about the hatchet and the coin? Well, still, that's no re... Andy? No. I didn't spank him. Oh, well, that's good. <laughs> Just not necessary. He learned his lesson. Good talking to is the best thing, making him stay in his room. <laughs> I didn't do that either. Well, what did you do? I told him I believed him. You told him you believed... But, Andy, what he told you is impossible. Well, a whole lot of times I've asked him to believe things that to his mind must seem just as impossible. Oh, but, Andy, this silver hat and the jingling and the smoke from the ears, what about all that? Oh, I don't know, Bart. I guess it's a time like this when you're asked to believe something that just don't seem possible. That's the moment that decides whether you got faith in somebody or not. Yeah, but how can you explain it all? I can't. But you do believe in Mr. McBeavy? No, no, no. I do believe in Opie. Don't smoke. Yeah, you know, at some point in time in our families, and maybe many points in time, we're all Opie. We're all looking at somebody in our family and saying, look, <laughs> will you believe in me? Won't you please believe in me? We need that. We need them to have trust in us, have faith in us, have confidence in us. Even if we've blown it, maybe a second chance. Maybe seven second chances or 70 times seven. And we're all Andy at some point as well. And somebody in our family needs us to believe in them. Love believes all things, has confidence in, trusts in, and express that. That's just modeling God's love. He is the God, according to Paul in Romans, who calls things that are not as if they were. He calls us saints. He calls us holy ones. He calls us righteous. Are we those things in our condition? No, we are not. But he calls us those things. He believes in us, and we are trying to live up and become that, which he's already given us credit for being. Lasting love believes. <laughs>